Uh, so the first reading this evening, as uh, on the screen, is from John chapter 1 on page 750. John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light, the true light that gives light... Uh, light uh, sorry. The, um, the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognise him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the second reading tonight is on page 800, and it's from Romans chapter 8. And starting at verse 9. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin. Yet, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live, because those who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Good evening. Uh, my name is Ronaldo, and uh, welcome to church this evening. If we haven't met, uh, it'd be nice to meet you at some point in the service or afterwards. 
Uh, we've had a wonderful weekend of weather, haven't we? And I uh, hope you've really enjoyed this beautiful weather that God's given us today. And uh, Paul, thanks very much for clarifying uh, the purpose of the sermon. Uh, my goal is not to get you to adopt children, but it's actually to tell you that we've been adopted by God. But if the Spirit leads you to adopt a child, then please go ahead and do it. There was a preacher in America who was so gripped by God's love in adopting him that he went out and then adopted a child himself. Uh, how about I pray for us, and then we'll um, look at the Bible together. Uh, Heavenly Father, please uh, help us to be attentive to your word. Uh, please apply these truths to our hearts so deeply that we may live for you all the more. Amen. I've got two questions for you tonight for you to consider and think about. Uh, the first one is this. What right do you value the most? Uh, with a congregation full of lawyers, I'm gathering, uh, you should kind of know a little bit about rights. So what right do you value the most? Have a think about it. Is it your Australian citizenship? Uh, you may have travelled overseas and realised actually the rights that are afforded to you in this country and the opportunities are just so great that you love your citizenship. Uh, I've got two passports in my wallet. Here's my Filipino one and my Australian one. Uh, the Filipino one was traded in a long time ago. There's a photo of me here, black and white. Uh, we're a little bit behind in the Philippines. Cute kid I was. And here's my Australian one. And if you ask me which one I'd rather, it'd be this one. I love the Philippines and I love the people and I love my family. Uh, but Australia just affords me so many more opportunities. And if you're someone from the Philippines here tonight, and I can see a few of you are, please don't get offended, but... Australia is just a beautiful country, isn't it? It's a lucky country. Or it could be ownership. Uh, not all countries uh, have an opportunity for people to own what they make or produce from their labours. Maybe it's the right of ownership. What about freedom of speech? Uh, not every country allows that. Uh, you may be someone that's passionate about a particular cause. You may just enjoy blogging on the internet and expressing your opinion. Maybe freedom of speech is the right that you value. Or maybe you just never considered rights at all. Um, rights are a weird thing, aren't they? They're really nothing in and of themselves. Uh, it's only what they entitle you to that show their value. And the power of a right only happens by which uh, they're enforced. But we still sort of value rights implicitly. So have a think about that. What right do you value the most? And my second question for you is this. What title are you most proud of? What title are you most proud of? And you're probably thinking, Ronaldo, we don't live in the 18th century Victorian period with all these titles like barons and earls and countesses and lords. But surely there are titles that you esteem. Maybe it's CEO, partner, senior analyst, church warden. That'd be kind of sad, but anyway, each to their own. Best and fairest, most valuable player. You know, there's a whole bunch of titles that dress up quite ordinary jobs. This is some of a few that I found on the internet. A vision clearance engineer. Have a guess what job that is. It's a window cleaner. <laughs> Aquatics engineer. It's a water boy. You see, rights and titles are all good things, and I'm not here to bag out rights and titles at all. I think they're good things. And in some ways, rights and titles actually do bestow a certain sense of value upon us, don't they? But I think so many of the titles that we esteem these days are about what we do. 
And I want to suggest to you tonight that the greatest title that we can be given, the most supreme one, is this. We are children of God and have God as our Heavenly Father. I repeat that. We are children of God and have God as our Heavenly Father. That's the richest right. Uh, Rich because it entitles you to so much. And it's the truest because there could be nothing more true of you than to say you're a child of God. You know, ponder this. The glorious God who created everything, who made this world, who made you, who is just so powerful and holy and good, would actually adopt you as his child. That he could call him Heavenly Father. And some of you are probably thinking, who cares? God's the creator of all, isn't he? And therefore he's the father of all. But that's not what the Bible says. Yes, he creates all, but it doesn't mean that he's the father of all. That's a unique and special relationship that only Christians enjoy. And we'll get into the meaning of that in a minute. Some of you may have had wonderful experiences of fathers, and you probably take it for granted, and you probably never really think about God being your father all that much. But you need to know that you should be thankful to him. And if you have had a good experience with an earthly dad, know that's only a reflection of the fact that Uh, God is uh, the father of Jesus, and it's only a small reflection of that perfect and good relationship between a father and son. But for some of us, we've had some really, really terrible experiences of fatherhood, haven't we? Um, For some of you guys, and I I know particularly in this this congregation, uh, some of your fathers died without you ever having an opportunity to get to know them. Some of your fathers abandoned you and just left. Some of your fathers may have abused you in all sorts of ways. Some of your fathers may have just neglected you. And other fathers were just overbearing and just impossible to please. And you've just got a very, very sour taste of what fatherhood is all about. And I understand this pain personally. Um, As a Bible teacher or someone who's coming to be a Bible teacher, it's not my intention to share a lot about my family, but I thought... On a topic like this, it'd actually be quite fitting. Uh, You see, I was raised without my father. Uh, He chose to have another family. And uh, I accepted this from a very young age, but it was still really painful. Uh, We've since reconciled since I finished university, but it's still really, really far from what it could have and should have been. And the man who stepped into the breach, my stepfather, uh, who came in when I was very young, he just wasn't ready for the job just wasn't ready for it at all, and just all sorts of pain uh, caused. And so I sympathize with your hurts if you're someone here who just really is hurting from this whole experience of what it's like to live under your parents. But I think the fact that it hurts so much probably implies that fatherhood is such a precious thing, isn't it? You know, it's the good things in life, the really wonderful and beautiful things that should go well, but when they go bad, they just cause so much pain. Is that right? Hmm. But I want to urge you tonight to actually open yourself up to this message, to open up yourself to the fact that God is your Father if you trust in Christ, despite what your experiences may have been. And his fatherhood is totally different and more wonderful than what you can ever experience from any earthly father. And so in exploring this great theme of being a child of God, there are really three main phases to this life. Um, It really relates to the past, present, and future. Just three main points which I'll be speaking through. It firstly goes back to our birth and the rights that are handed out to be children of God. And then secondly, it affects the life here and now and the way in which we relate to God as Father. 
But then we cast our eyes to the future as well, where we keep our minds on this great inheritance that God has for us. So I'm going to be speaking about those three things there. So the first point, rights handed out. It all starts with Jesus. It all starts with Jesus. Think about it. The eternal word in John 1, the Son of God who was with God for all eternity and through whom the world was made, actually steps into our world, takes on human flesh and becomes one of us and becomes human. And if there was ever a downward career move, it would be that. And you've got to ask yourself, what is the reason that John gives for Jesus coming? If you were to write a story about Jesus and just how magnificent he was, what is the first reason you'd give for him coming? And it's this. Jesus came as God's adoption agency in order that we may be children of God. There are no catches to the offer. There's only a response. And the response is that we accept it by trusting in him. And so if you turn back to John chapter 1, in your Bibles, I'll read out verses 1, 11 to 12 again. He came to that which was his own, but his own didn't receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You see, there's the key. Receiving Jesus and believing in his name. It's a personal acceptance of Jesus. And it's so much more than just letting the wind pass through your lips saying, yeah, I believe in Jesus. He existed like 2,000 years ago, right? Yeah, I believe in him. No, it's so much more than that. To believe in the name of Jesus and to receive him. It means putting your life under the banner of his name. It means surrendering everything you have to him. It's trusting him as Lord and Savior. Jesus made some radical claims, radical claims about who he was, like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father through me. And by implication, he's saying that if you're not trusting in him, you're the walking dead. He made all sorts of claims as grand as that. And to believe in Jesus and to receive him is to personally accept those claims, treat them as true, and entrust yourself to them. That's what it means. And if you're someone that's done this, he's given you the right to become a child of God. You know, you need to focus on this title and cherish it above all others. You know, I may be an Australian citizen, I've got a passport, and that's great, I love this country, but being a child of God just beats it so much. I may have all the blessings that this country gives me, but I know at the end of the day, it's my Heavenly Father that gives them more than the economic and material opportunities that I may get for myself. And you need to take notice of the word gave. Jesus gives the right. He gave the right. Because it's given, it means that we don't deserve it. You know, rather than wanting to know God intimately, we estranged ourselves from him. We walked away. Do you remember that movie, Annie? It's my sister's favorite movie growing up. Um, you know the song, The stars will come out tomorrow. You know the one, right? Annie was a cute little kid, you know, with the rosy little cheeks and the curly red hair and the little freckles, and she was just adorable. And you just wanted to adopt her, didn't you? And you think, that must have been what it was like with us and God. And it wasn't. It was the exact opposite. You know, Daddy Warbucks was there, and he was just that really hesitant, recalcitrant dad, just grumpy, and Annie's trying to win him over by her cute little charm. That's just not the way it was with us and God. Total opposite. 
we were just evil little wicked children, and out of his great love, he brings us into his family. And it's his initiative. And it's described in the most intimate of ways here in John 1. It's described in terms of birth. If we're his children, then we've been born of him. That's kind of the logic. You see, we've been reborn and rebirthed. And the whole idea of birth is that it's done to you. I mean, you don't, you don't give birth to yourself, right? Raise your hand here if you've had any say in when and how and where you were born. No. That's, my, that's exactly what I was thinking. And if you were to raise your hand, we'd have a talk about the birds and the bees <laughs> later on. But it's a strange concept to be born again, isn't it? Uh, and for a while, it was this kind of cool description of Christians. It was it kind of trendy in the 80s? I'm a born-again Christian. And you'd go to a dinner party, and you'd ask the person next to you, you know, at a Christian dinner party, are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a born-again Christian. And you'd just be sitting your head in shame, going, I'm just an Anglican Christian. <laughs> but that's rubbish, guys, because if you're a Christian, you're a child of God, and if you're a child of God, you've been born of God. That's the logic here in John 1. You're a child of God, you're born of God. It's God's initiative. God does the birthing. And you see, the whole idea of birth is kind of crazy as well, because you think, you know, you remember Nicodemus and he, to Jesus, and he's just like, Jesus, how can, how can one be reborn again? Like, how does that, how does that work? How does one come out of his mum's womb again when, you know, you're fully grown? My mum's like this big. It's not going to happen. But it's kind of different. Jesus doesn't mean it in a physical way. It means actually taking on that which prepares us for a new life with God. It means to be born spiritually. That's what it means. And in verse 13, it's defined by what it's not. Kind of thing. It's weird. It's defined by what it's not. Have a look at verse 13. And I'll start with 12. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. You see, being born of God and being rebirthed isn't like being born into your earthly family at all. It's totally different. You see, it's not about natural descent, which I think is what he's meaning here is blood ties. And you see, you could be the child of the who's who in the Sydney Anglican Church, of Sydney Anglican royalty, and there are some people here who are like that, but that counts for nothing when it comes to being part of God's family. You could be part of very wealthy and noble and cultured families, and it counts for nothing. God has children. He doesn't have grandchildren, is what one person once told me. And that's the thing that's being implied here. Nor was it human decision, which I think is a euphemism for sexual desire, and nor was it a husband's will, who was understood in the ancient times to take the, the lead in sexual matters within a family and of procreation. And those last two points, human decision and a husband's will, it kind of it creates this sort of idea of, or this understanding of, it's so easy for children to come into this world. I mean, how many children are born into our world who are unwanted, unplanned, and unloved? And they're born totally out of insecurity. I mean, any guy can go off and give birth to a child. It can happen easily. But to quote the wise Keanu Reeves from that classic 80s movie, Parenthood, it's a great movie, he says this to his mother-in-law, 
He says, and I'll do it with my Keanu Reeves accent for you. You know, Mrs. Buckman, you need a license to buy a dog, to drive a car. Heck, you even need a license to catch a fish. But they'll let any swear word be a father. It's kind of true of our world, isn't it? Anyone can be a father. Anyone can come into this world unwanted. But not so with God. Not so with God. You're planned. You have a purpose. You're dearly loved. I mean, he sent his son to come into this world, his one and eternal son, and who at the end of this story in John's Gospel will die on a cross for you. How could you not be more planned and loved and cherished than that? How much more intentional can he be? And you see, if we're born of God, as his children, this has implications for today. And it leads to my second point. Today, if we're born of God and we're children of God, we relate to him as father. You see, the God who gives us new birth, as his children, invites us to relate to him as father. God gives us his spirit that actually lives within within us and moves us to relate to God as father. That's what it says in Romans 8. And that's, that's what he's getting at. And I'll read it again. And if you could turn back to Romans 8, it would be really helpful because we'll spend some time there. And I'll start from verse 15. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children See, the, the word Abba was an everyday word for father um, back in Jesus' time. It was an everyday family word um, that was just used just like dad here today. But for a Jew, a respecting Jew who worshipped God, they wouldn't dare call God Abba Father. But Jesus uses it all the time to sort of talk about his intimate relationship with God. And you see the wonderful thing here is he actually enables us and give, gives us permission to call God in those intimate terms that he had. Abba, Father. It's a wonderful privilege. There's no greater relationship than this. God is our Father. We've been given a new adoption certificate. Jesus has sort of stamped it, given the rights. Our name's on it. God is our Father. That's the image here, and that's how we relate to him. And as our Father, what do we do? We cry out to him like we would our earthly fathers when we're in pain. He cares for us. He provides for us. And if I could just give a little segue about the upcoming sermon series on Sermon on the Mount. The whole basis of that is the fact that Jesus invites us to call God as Father. And all these really, really hard and somewhat just difficult teachings of Jesus all are on the basis of the fact that God is our Father in heaven and we live for him. And that's basically the entry point into next week's sermon series. And it's the privilege that we have as Christians to call God as Father. Um, One very celebrated theologian said this. His name's Jim Packer. He said, what is a Christian? The question can be answered in so many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a, children, that, a, that a Christian is one who has God as Father. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian, as opposed to just merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father 
is the Christian name for God. That's the reality. And there's another very, very well-respected Christian that I know uh, who's getting on now and been a Christian for decades. Uh, John Stott's his name. Every day that he wakes up, the first thing he does is he greets his father. He says, good morning, father. Thanks for another day in your world. He is just so aware of this reality that he's a child of God that it starts his day. And I suppose what we need as Christians is assurance that this is true, that we can relate to God as Father. And this is exactly what the Holy Spirit's come to do. He came to live in us and give us that assurance to prompt us, to relate us to God, and to actually enable us to call out to God as Father. That's what the Holy Spirit does in our lives when he comes to live in us. I'm not sure if you've seen that movie, The Blind Side. I'm a sucker for feel-good movies. Uh, it's the movie that Sandra Bullock won her Oscar for, and you can have all the debates you want about whether she deserved it or not, but it was still a really, really good movie. And it's about Sandra, uh, her character. Uh, it's based on a true story about adopting this homeless boy uh, into her family, who then becomes this mega sort of football star. And it's just a beautiful film where uh, she takes this boy off the street, she brings him into her home, she feeds him, she clothes him, he goes, he's part of their Thanksgiving celebrations. Uh, eventually, it leads her to the point where her and her husband adopt him as a child, uh, legally. And she just gives so much of herself that in the end, when he's in a point of crisis, uh, he gives her a call on the phone, and the first thing he says to her, and I think it's the first time, is he says, Mum, she's given so much of herself as a mother to show that she's actually a parent to him, that it just forces him to call out to her as mum. And it's exactly the same with God. He doesn't just give stuff, though, like, like a new home. He gives his very spirit to come and live in us that will enable us to call him as father. That's the generosity of God. And that's the spirit's work. You can look at it in your Bibles. It says he's the spirit of sonship. Or the other way of thinking about it is he's the spirit of adoption. That's his business. He moves within us so that we cry, Abba, Father. And he testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. In, in ancient days, for something to be true, you needed more than two witnesses. And our, our spirit and the spirit go together and testify that God is our Father. And when you had two more witnesses, it became binding. It actually became set in stone. And that's exactly what's going in here when the, when the spirit testifies with our spirit. And you see, there's profound implications if God is our Father and we are children, and I'm going to spell some of them out at this point in time. But the first thing is we have no reason to fear. If you're one of those people with a tender conscience, you fear that day of meeting God, or you fear what the Christian life entails, know that there's no reason to fear. And I think the fear that's being spoken of here is, is sin and, and, and the judgment to follow and death. And Jesus just defeats all those things. And if you're a child of God, you just share in those victories. And if we're God's children and God is our Father, then what does that make us in relation to one another? It makes us brothers and sisters in Christ. Have a look in the pews around you. Actually look around. These people are your brothers and sisters. Now you may not like that. You may go, oh my goodness, Am I related to these people? You are. 
We're family. You know that? We are family. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, we look out for each other. We love each other. We carry each other's burdens. We spend time together. We relate to each other. And if we're here in church, what does that make church? Since we're on the theme of the local church for this year, it makes church a family meeting. And I've got to admit that when I talk to people at this church over supper, that's far from the attitude and perspective that I get. We have five services at this church, and often the way that church is treated is like a cinema session. Should I go to the 5 o'clock session? Or should I go to the 6.45 session? Fact, actually, I'd rather do church on a Saturday night because I've got plans on Sunday, so I'll go to the Saturday night church. I've seen people that float around like that. And you say, yes, the the church as a whole is a family. Don't get me wrong. But I think the fullest expression of that happens here within each congregation. And when you step into a congregation, it's not just a movie session, it's a family meeting. It's a family meeting by which we relate to God, we offer our prayers to our Father every week, we hear from his word, we encourage each other over supper. And if it's a family meeting, we come on time as well. I mean, we have four songs, and it's sort of in the last two songs that half of us come. I don't want to pick on you about this, and I don't want to be nitpicky, but if we're a family meeting, then we come on time. Like, that's what you do, isn't it? Like, you go to your family dinner, and you come on time. Like, that's just a principle you hold. It's a given. And that's what we should do for one another. We come on time. And finally, the other implication is, if we're the children of God, God doesn't spoil us. He doesn't spoil us, but he disciplines us so that we grow more like him. And finally, being a child means something for the future. My third and final point, it's realising your inheritance. You see, having God as father means there's an inheritance. That's the benefit of being a child of God. And totally, and our understanding of this subject of being adopted would be totally incomplete if we didn't talk about inheritance. Verse 17. If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. You get his logic? The Spirit testifies that we are children of God. If we are then children, we are heirs. Something's installed for us, and we're co-heirs with Christ. And it's unlike being heirs of kind of your earthly family will, isn't it? Like my mom the other day said, Ron, I I wrote my will, and I just didn't ask anything, partly because if I asked, it would kind of imply that I'd want her to die in some ways. So I just was like, well, that's great, mom, but I really love you, and I really love the time we have together. So... We don't kind of ask about our inheritance, do we? And I think that's a good thing. But it's not the case here in the Bible when it comes to our Christian inheritance. God freely opens it up to us and tells us exactly what's in store. And so I ask, what is it? What's our inheritance? What do we get? Is it material things? Is it a bunch of stuff? Is it a house? I mean, Jesus did say, after all, that he was going to be with the Father to prepare a place for us, didn't he? So he's going to build us a house with the heavenly harbour views that we may have missed out on in this, in this age. 
You see, I think it's really, really easy to transfer our materialistic view of stuff onto this concept of inheritance. And I don't think that's what it's all about based on the context. I think the inheritance is enjoying God himself. And let me spell it out here because I think it's a bit tricky. Have a look at your Bibles. I think it's enjoying the presence of God. And here's how I arrive at this. If you look at verse 17 again, To be an heir of God is to receive the things of God, the things of his nature. Okay, that doesn't really help all that much. Okay. To be a co-heir with Christ means as we've been brought into his family, we also have a similar destiny to him. And what was his destiny? He, he suffered, but then he was glorified. He was resurrected and brought up to God. And I think it's the same for us. If we're an heir, a co-heir of Christ... We share in his sufferings. That's the qualification. But the promise is God raises us up and brings us to new life. Where the crappy stuff of this world no longer is, he gets rid of it, he restarts creation, we be with him in his presence, and we enjoy his fellowship and presence forever. That's what it means to share in the glory of Jesus, because that's exactly what Jesus experienced. And we need to remember it here and now. And the reason is because life gets really, really tough. And life can really, really suck. And it can be very, very painful. And that's the assumption here in Romans 8. And that's what he spells out later. Like verse 18, he says, I don't think our present sufferings are worth comparing. Verse 21, he says, the world is decaying. It's actually just kind of breaking down and it's not what it is. Um, Verse 26, we're weak. It gets to the point where we can't even pray. Verse 33, charges and accusations get brought against Christians. There's injustice, injustices in this world. And what God says to us is, none of these things are worth comparing to the great glory that's to come, our inheritance, our resurrection. So let me sum up. Being a child of God means you look backwards. You look backwards to your birth, to the fact that you're born of God. He planned you, he purposed you if you believed and received Jesus. You look to the present now and you relate to God as your heavenly father who loves you and you understand the spirit moves within you relating you to God and giving you that assurance day by day. And you look to the future of the inheritance that's to come. I asked you earlier tonight, what right do you most value and what title are you most proud of? I hope it's that you are children of God because Jesus has given you the right to be God's children. I hope that's the title and that's the right that you most cherish in this world. So how about I pray the family prayer that Jesus taught us? How about I lead in that? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen.